Amen, church. Go ahead and take a seat. Worship team, thank you um, this morning. And church, thank you for being with us this morning, being here and a part of what God is doing. It is good to be in God's house, isn't it? Um, We want to welcome those who are here in person. We want to welcome those who are tuning in online through Facebook or YouTube. And uh, we are glad that you've decided to join us. Um, My name is Tyler. I'm the Youth and Families Pastor, and uh, I am so thrilled that we can come together on a Sunday morning worshiping the Lord. Um, And uh, in just a minute, we're going to open God's Word. We're going to worship Him through the teaching of God's Word, which I am excited about. But I have a couple quick announcements this morning. And the first is if you are a visitor, um, maybe this is your first time here, maybe you're visiting online, if you can fill out a communication card for us, that would be wonderful. We would be uh, encouraged by that, and we believe you would be encouraged by that as well. You can do that on the Church Center app, or if you're online, you can scroll down and click the link there uh, to fill that out. Uh, A couple other announcements. Obviously, we have our kids' ministry program going on in the second service. If you want to be a part of that, your kids uh, want to be a part of that, they can come to that as well. In between services, We have a prayer meeting that happens downstairs in the cafe. And so um, we had a prayer meeting back last fall before COVID hit. That was um, just an incredible way to to worship and to serve our church by praying for the needs of of our church and our families, specific requests, and coming together in that way. We are still offering that. And so if you're interested... Uh, in what that looks like, or if you want to be a part of that prayer service, I'm going to say you can speak with Ken Hayner uh, about that and ask him questions, uh, and he would be glad to answer those. But that that happens in between the services. Uh, This year we are uh, serving in many different ways. We're going to provide opportunities for you to reach out to the community through the Christmas season. But one thing that we have done over the last few years that we will continue to do is partner with Samaritan's Purse, uh, and although this year looks really different, we're going to try to keep some things the same, right? And, uh, and so we are giving our church an opportunity to pack boxes to send to kids around the world. We want you to be involved with that church. And uh, all, there's a way to do that this year that is a little bit different than past years. And most of it is done online. Uh, we will, you will still be able to do physical boxes, but we won't bring them here. And so the information is a little bit different. I want to put it on your radar. Those boxes are still due by the second week in November. And so uh, the information for those is on our Church Center app that you can click. You can get information on how to pack those, where to go online, and what to do. You can also talk with Chelsea Willenbrink. Ask her any questions as you uh, walk by her this morning. Got it? Samaritan's Purse? Good. Oh, yeah, we do have it, yes. Um, A couple other quick uh, reminders that we have, we will be partaking in the Lord's Supper on Sunday the 8th, and we will provide prepackaged elements. And so if you'll be here, you'll get a prepackaged elements for for the Lord's Supper. If you're online, maybe you can uh, begin to prepare now to, um, to partner with us as we do that so you can be involved in that way. And then on the 14th, our church will be doing a blood drive, and we want you to be aware of that as always. We That's another way that you can serve our community and beyond through our blood drive on the 14th. Church, we are so thrilled that you continue to give uh, and give faithfully 
uh, this morning. If you are uh, prepared to give your tithes and your offerings, you can do that in the box next to the door uh, on your way out. And we want to say thank you through, for worshiping the Lord in that way in your tithes and your offerings. Uh, and at this time, I am going to invite my good friend uh, and partner in the ministry, Simon Jones, to uh, come up, continue, continuing to worship through the teaching of God's word. Okay, here we are. Uh, it's good to be here today. If uh, you don't know me, my name is uh, Simon. I serve mainly with the high school and the, uh, the college kids, but occasionally they trust me enough to let me be up here on Sunday morning. Uh, I am eager to open up the Bible today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. Uh, if you have a Bible, you are welcome to turn there with me, Mark 12. Uh, as you're turning to Mark... Uh, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 122. It says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. The psalmist says he was glad to go to the house of the Lord. It is good. It is good to gather together. It makes me think of those sad days not that long ago uh, when we couldn't do that because of the pandemic. Uh, Sunday morning, the alarm would go off, and I would go downstairs and go to church, so to speak, in my living room, watching Pastor Matt on my television, eating bran flakes, and drinking coffee out of my Star Trek mug. Now, some of you may find that sad for multiple reasons, but thankfully, those days are currently no more, and I think we can all agree that uh, church in a room is far better than church on Zoom. It has been said many, many times that the church is a people, not a place, and that is true. That is emphatically true, as far as it goes. But I don't think that statement is quite complete. The church is a people, but it's a people who meet, that gather in a place together. A church without a gathering place, a church that doesn't assemble, is not a church at least not a biblical one, there is a con congregational aspect, a corporate nature to the church that I don't think can be replicated via any electronic means. We must meet together. It is essential. We gather in order to mutually encourage. And we encourage in order to mutually endure. The church is where we practice the one another commands listed in the Bible. Among them, Love one another, honor one another, serve one another, comfort one another, pray for one another, submit to one another, be patient with one another, bear one another's burdens. The church is described in the Westminster Confession of Faith as the house and family of God. It's a family gathering from infant to elderly from toddler to teenager, this is a family gather all together in one room. Matt Smethurst writes this, and I think he gets this exactly right when he writes, let's be honest, if the church is fundamentally what happens up front, why not stick with sweatpants and internet worship? But to the degree that our intuitions are being formed and reformed according to God's word, to the degree that we think of corporate worship as a family gathering, then turning in from our living rooms will start to feel as dissatisfying as live streaming family dinner. 
I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now that has absolutely nothing to do with today's text, but it has been on the front burner of my heart recently. So, we're going to be at Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 44. Mark 12, 35 to 44, we're going to read it, then endeavor to understand what it says, interpret what it means, and finally, hopefully, apply it to our lives today. Starting in verse 35, it says this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in money into the offering box. Many rich, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you have given. Thank you for this chance that we do have to gather. I pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you and know you, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would unite our heart to fear your name, that you would free us from distractions, that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so this passage takes place Tuesday of Holy Week, and Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, right? In just a few days, Jesus will be crucified. He entered Jerusalem on Sunday to much acclaim and approval. He has in the meantime cleansed the temple and entered into a long discourse with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The Herodians and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, have all asked Jesus questions, various questions, one about paying taxes to Caesar and another about the resurrection of the dead, all attempts to trap him, to make him look foolish, or maybe to get him in trouble with the governing authorities. However, Jesus has passed all their tests. Having foiled their fruitless attempts to trick him, it's now Jesus' turn to pose his own question to the religious leaders. And he asks them in verse 45, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He continues in verse 36, and he quotes from the 110th Psalm. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? That's his question. So, so what's going on here? Well, the Christ, the long-promised kingly Messiah, or the anointed one, the one who would deliver and save the Jewish people and rule and reign, was rightly understood by the religious leaders as having to be descended from King David. In fact, in Matthew's parallel account of this scene in Matthew 22, it's recorded that Jesus actually begins at, by asking the scribes this question. What do you think about the Christ? 
whose son is he? And they rightly answer, the son of David. There was no dispute about this. And Jesus is not disputing this here. The scribes knew the scriptures. Here's one example among many. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. To call someone the son of David, therefore, had messianic implications. Twice, twice in the book of Mark, that very title has been given to Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And in Mark 11, during the triumphal entry, when he is coming into Jerusalem, what do the crowds proclaim? They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. With that background, Jesus asked the scribes, how is it possible the Messiah can be David's son if David calls him Lord? And then he quotes from Psalm 110, the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 was held by virtually everyone to be written by King David, but also to be messianic, to be concerning the coming Messiah. Now, just a short parenthesis here. Jesus is about to teach the Jewish leaders something about the Messiah. And he's going to be doing it by quoting the Old Testament. A psalm, which Jesus simultaneously ascribes authorship both to David and to the Holy Spirit. It seems like in general today, the Old Testament is not in vogue. But let us beware of undervaluing it, or hiding from it, or simply ignoring the Old Testament. Not many of us, I don't believe, would have the, the chutzpah to do what Marcion did in AD 144 when he assembled his own canon of scripture, cutting out, rejecting in its entirety the Old Testament. And this man was a heretic. In a much less egregious way, if we today ignore the Old Testament, thinking it has nothing to offer us, thinking it's totally unnecessary, we are guilty of, of a similar offense, though far less egregious. And we do that to our own peril. J.C. Ryle, writing about the Old Testament, says this, There are deep things about Jesus in it, which many walk over like hidden gold mines and not know the treasures beneath their feet. Let us reverence all the Bible. All is given by inspiration. All is profitable. One part throws light on another, and no part can never be neglected without loss and damage to our souls. So back in this psalm, David is speaking in the Holy Spirit, and he is overhearing a conversation between two people. David says, the Lord, this is God, this is God the Father, this is Yahweh. And we know that because if you look at Psalm 110, uh, we see that the word Lord is in all capital letters, which traditionally is how translators have translated the personal name of God. This is the name that uh, God reveals himself to, uh, to Moses at the burning bush. And the Lord is speaking, and he's speaking to somebody that David calls my Lord. 
the Lord says to my Lord, and my Lord is held to be the promised Messiah. Therefore, David calls the Messiah my Lord. And in this psalm, David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, has been witness to a conversation between God the Father, the Lord, and the Messiah, David's Lord. All three members of the Trinity right here. And this forms the basis of Jesus' question to the scribes. How can David call the Christ his son, Lord? How is the use of such a title consistent with David's own occupation of a superior position, that of an ancestor compared to that of a physical descendant? The older doesn't call the younger Lord. A father doesn't call a son Lord, I don't think at least. It goes the other way around. So why does David do it? What does it mean for the Messiah to be David's Lord? That's really the question. And the scribes give no answer, likely because they had no answer. Nor does Mark really record Jesus supplying one. But we today, in light of the rest of the New Testament and the Gospel of Mark, we can indeed provide an answer. How can the Christ at the same time be David's son and David's Lord? Because, although he is his son by descent, and therefore David's junior in age, he is also, at the same time, superior to David in rank. The Messiah is more than a mere son of David. He's also the son of God. Romans chapter 1 says this, Jesus, who, is de- who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. This is nothing less than a claim to divinity. This is Jesus saying implicitly, yes, I've been recognized as the son of David. I'm sorry. I've been recognized as the son of David, and that's right. But I am so much more than the son of David. I am also David's God. And I will one day sit at the right hand of my father, sharing in his blessing, authority, and righteousness, ruling and reigning over my enemies. I am the very son of God. Or as the Nicene Creed puts it, Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father. This is the same Jesus who Mark records exercising the divine prerogatives of pronouncing forgiveness of sins, commanding healings rather than requesting healings, rebuking the wind, walking on water, whom the demons have even addressed as son of the most high God. Jesus is exposing the ignorance of the Jewish teachers about the true nature of the Messiah. It seems that they were expecting a merely human Messiah coming to restore a merely human kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. He is far greater than the political savior the scribes were expecting to come, thinking that a political savior could solve their deepest problems. I hope this morning that we too have not fallen into thinking that a certain political savior will solve our deepest problems, because no politician can do that. No merely human savior can do that. Regardless of the election outcome this week, All the newspapers, in all the nations, in all the world ought to have one headline Wednesday morning. 
and it should say, King Jesus still reigns. Proverbs 21 reminds us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And John Newton, author of the hymn Amazing Grace, but author of so much more than that, wrote this during a divisive time in his own country's history. There is one political maxim which comforts me. The Lord reigns. His hand guides the storm. He knows them that are his how to protect, support, and deliver them. He will take care of his cause. Yea, he will extend his kingdom. Men have one thing in view, he has another, and his counsel shall stand. You may ask, what's the big deal about all this? This passage just seems to be Jesus making an academic point to the Jewish teachers about the Messiah 2,000 years ago. How is this relevant today? And that's a, that's a good question to ask. Or you may ask, if a political savior can't solve my deepest problem, who can? What is my deepest problem? What kind of savior do I need? That's also a good question to ask. Um, not that long ago, a high school student asked me this question. Uh, what are you afraid of? Um, I think in the moment, I was a little bit surprised by that question and I didn't really answer it well, or uh, I don't actually think I really answered it at all. Uh, to be sure, there are a lot of scary things in this world. Uh, we're living in the middle of a pandemic. We're still living under the active threat of terrorism and nuclear war by rogue regimes. There are destructive natural disasters around us like wildfires and hurricanes that cause damage. Uh, there are ordinary fears, regular daily fears, like losing your job or being unable to pay the bills, losing a loved one to cancer. Like, there are a lot of things that we can fear in this world, and, and I do not mean to minimize any of those. Those are bad things. But if I were asked that question again, what are you afraid of? Uh, none of those would be my answer. I'll, um, I'll tell you what frightens me this morning. Sin, uh, sin frightens me. It's, it's, it's deceitfulness. It's, it's stubbornness. It's relentlessness. Sin is a cruel master. It promises freedom, but it brings slavery. It brings the hope of happiness, but instead hardens the soul. And in the nooks and crannies of my heart, after knowing and trusting Jesus for many years, experiencing his faithfulness towards me again and again, despite that, the lying promises of sin are still believed by me at times. I still retreat to this evil slave master even though I've been set free. The vestiges of sin remain. Worst of all is unforgiven sin Sin is one of those words that we don't like to talk about, uh, certainly that our culture doesn't talk about. And, you know, start talking about sin at work, you're probably going to get some very strange looks. Um, I, I would. One definition of sin is simply breaking God's law, transgressing God's command. And while that may not seem like a big deal, it, it is a big deal. As terrible as terrorism is, or as living in a pandemic, or as losing your job, 
unforgiven sin is worse. Only unforgiven sin has the power to cast us into hell for eternity. Nuclear war doesn't have that power. Sin does, though. God doesn't wink at sin. He, he doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He can't do that. That would violate his character. And that's one thing God can't do. He cannot act against his nature. He can't deny himself. He is a righteous judge. And we're guilty sinners who are rebelling against his rule and his reign. And the wages of sin, what sin earns, is death, is, is separation from God and hell for eternity. And that's a big problem. That's a problem that no mere political savior can fix. That's a problem that no merely human savior can remedy. However, it is a problem that can be fixed by a savior who is 100% man, just like us, and who is at the same time 100% God, able to satisfy God's just wrath. It is a problem that can be fixed by a savior who is the son of David and also the son of God. It's a problem that can be fixed by the Jesus who is presented to us in the Gospel of Mark. And that's why this text is such good news and why it's relevant today. This is not Jesus making an academic point. This is nothing less than the glorious good news of the Gospel. That the everlasting God became a man to rescue a people for himself. Galatians chapter 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, Jesus, I'm sorry, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what kind of savior do we need? Exactly the one that God sent. Moving on, Jesus next directs his aim squarely at the scribes and the religious leaders. His condemnation is severe, and his judgment against them is harsh, telling us to beware of such people. So what does Jesus condemn them for? Well, this is what we read. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, who like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogue, and the places of honor at feasts. These men take pleasure in impressing other people by their outward appearance. They are flashy, and ostentatious. They dress in a way that shows off their high status. They love the praise that comes from men. They expect to be noticed. They expect to be honored. They yearn to be made much of. What Jesus condemns here is they're seeking honor for themselves instead of for the God whom they profess to serve. I wonder if in some ways we are not the same. I mean, who doesn't want to be noticed? Who doesn't want to be praised? Being praised feels good. It's intoxicating. It's, it's a deadly toxin. It's a symptom of a heart which doesn't know God. A heart that's reborn, reformed by God's word and not this world, at the bottom of that heart will be, must be, a desire to make much of the God who saved them. A heart that seeks to be like the one whom it loves. 
the one who lowered himself and washed his disciples' dirty feet, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on the cross, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. A heart that loves Jesus will desire the approval of God more than the approval of men. And honestly, it is really hard to point other people to Jesus when you're pointing at yourself. It's hard to make much of God when people can tell that you're full of yourself. Jesus continues, and he tells the scribe, he tells us that the scribes devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. The religious leaders, the shepherds of God's chosen people, those robed in priestly garments, the very ones they should protect most, the widow, the vulnerable, they take advantage of, prey on, and rob. Their outward respectability is contradicted by their brutal behavior. They're hypocrites. The Old Testament many times makes it clear that the widow, the sojourner, the orphan are objects of God's special concern and is often accompanied by a warning that God will avenge himself on those who exploit them. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this, the Lord your God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Surely they knew this. They knew the scriptures. Had they rejected the authority of the scriptures, their conduct would have at least been explainable. But as it is, they are without excuse. And to make matters even worse, as a covering for their heinous actions of robbery, they make long prayers. They use the precious means of communion with God as a covering for their crime. They disguise their disobedience by religious activity. They cloak their depravity in a facade of religiosity. Their hypocrisy is rank, and they will be judged for it. It says that they will even receive a harsher judgment. Leaders are held to a higher standard. It has not escaped the Almighty's notice. One commentator warns and writes this, We cannot deceive an all-seeing God. We may take in poor short-sighted man by a little talk and profession and a few cant phrases and an affectation of devoutness, but God is not mocked. He is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. His all-seeing eyes pierces through the paint and varnish and tinsel which cover the unsound heart. The day of judgment will soon be here. The scribes love to be honored, ostentatious, exploitative, covetous, greedy, proud, hypocritical. Uh, sometimes I've found it helpful in studying the Bible when there's such a list to come up with a list of the opposite and then in a quiet moment examine my heart. Uh, so an opposite list could go something like this. Uh, love to serve. Modest. Meek. Honest. Generous. Content. Humble. 
consistent. Um, which list better describes you? Maybe today you can find time to pray and think on these words and examine your heart and repent where you fall short and plead for God's daily grace to help you live and be different in this world. Let us be careful to adorn our doctrine by our lives and live consistently in this world. Peter, though talking specifically to wives, says as much when he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothes you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do the rhythms of our life suggest we're living humbly, selflessly, and sacrificially for others? Or does it look like we're spending most of our time and energy and money taking care of our own needs and desires? That's the question. In contrast to these scribes, we meet someone else now, a poor widow, who is basically the polar opposite of these men. This is a story which is terribly familiar, but in some ways so foreign to us. Jesus has moved in the temple complex from the court of the Gentiles to the location of the temple treasury, which was in the court of the women. So named not because only women were allowed, but because this was as close as women could come to the, to the inner sanctuary of the temple. In this court was the treasury, which consisted of 13 like trumpet-shaped brass chests, which worshipers deposited their offerings into. These chests, because of their construction, amplified the sound of the coins as they were dropped in, making it rather obvious when a large sum was given. As Jesus was watching people putting their offerings in, many being wealthy put in large sums. You can like imagine the noise like ricocheting around the court as the coins like bounce off the bottom of the box, like patting themselves on the back a little bit. Uh, but then Jesus notices a widow. It says a poor widow who comes in and puts in two, two small copper coins two of the coins that were the least valuable in circulation in Palestine, worth almost nothing. This is not a lot of money. Uh, she's unseen and unnoticed by everyone. Everyone but Jesus, that is. Verse 43, Jesus, witnessing this, calls his disciples over to him because apparently they were, they were like not right there with him. But he has something to teach them something they need to see for themselves. It's as if he's saying, you guys need to come over here and look at this. And looking at the widow, he says to his disciples, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This story is shocking to us today. It's shocking to me. Like most of us look at this lady, I think if we're honest, would say that's just crazy. Or frankly, that's just stupid. 
Like, I don't even know if we can imagine this. Jesus says she put in all she had to live on. Like, maybe that was her money for her next meal. Or maybe rent was due. Or maybe she needed new clothes. I don't know. But I do know that she gave everything to God. She gave it all. Or, or maybe we're tempted to look at this lady and say, you know, that's advanced Christianity. She's like in the 400-level course. That's, that's not normal Christianity, like down here with the regular folks. Our Lord says she gave more than the wealthy. And he explains what he means. The rich gave large sums. And that's absolutely true. But theirs was only a contribution, generous as it might have been. Her gift was a sacrifice. God measures our generosity, not so much by what we give, but by what we keep for ourselves. Not by what we give, but by what we keep for ourselves. And this widow kept back nothing. She gave both coins. Like maybe she could have given one coin and kept one for herself. Like she could have legitimately done that. But no. She gave both coins. She gave it all. She gives all that she has, expecting God to provide all that she needs. Jesus wasn't swayed by outside appearances. Instead, God looks to the means of the giver and the motive of the heart as the measure of true generosity. What matters in God's sight is not what a person has, but the devotion which causes him or her to give, even at great personal cost. Even though the amount of the gift may be small in comparison to the gift of others, the gift does not matter to God so much as the giver. This lady gave when it hurt to give. She didn't give out of her surplus, she gave in her need. And her example is a stinging rebuke to many people today. Let me give you a modern version of this story, which I recently read. Uh, it's about a man from Haiti uh, that was written down by a missionary named Stanford Kelly. He's the missionary's writing, and he says this. The church was having a Thanksgiving festival, and each Christian was invited to bring a love offering at Thanksgiving. One envelope from a Haitian man named Edmund held $13 cash. That amount of money was three months' wages for a man working there. I was as surprised as those counting a Sunday envelope in the United States would be seeing $6,000 in an envelope. I looked around for Edmund, but I couldn't see him. Later, I met him in the village and questioned him. I pressed him for an explanation and found that Edmund had sold his horse in order to give the $13 gift to God for the sake of the gospel. But why hadn't he come to the festival? Edmund hesitated and didn't want to answer. Finally, Edmund said, because I had no shirt to wear. Edmund was financially very poor. Uh, he sold his horse, gave all the proceeds to God and the gospel, but he didn't go to the festival because he had no shirt. And he had no shirt to wear because he kept back nothing for himself. He gave it all. 
This man didn't give out of his surplus. He gave in his need. What explains this? Like, this is not the default position for people in this world. This has to be explained by something. What causes a man or a woman to live free from the love of things? What sets a person free from materialism and gives them the power to live out of step in this world? Like, so out of step. It makes me think of a parable that Jesus told. He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then he goes home and in his joy sells all that he has. All that he has to buy that field. Why would he do that? Surely it's because he found something better. He found something more valuable, more precious, that made the selling of all his possessions to acquire this field look like a steal. And God is that treasure. And when you receive him as your treasure, the accumulation of money loses its taste because you have tasted something sweeter and you are set free to now live with open hands. Both of these people are an example of the greatest commandment, which we talked about last week, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. These people are truly great as God defines greatness. And both of them are the polar opposite of the self-interested, greedy, unscrupulous scribes that Jesus condemned. The scribes are truly rich, though outwardly poor. I'm sorry. The widow is truly rich, though outwardly poor, while the scribes, though outwardly wealthy, are inwardly impoverished. So here's the obvious question that I have to ask, because the text demands it. Are you rich towards God? Are you, like this widow, living totally dependent on God? What are you keeping back for yourself? When was the last time you gave something and it hurt to give it? Or are you content merely to give out of your surplus and leftovers? It does little honor to God to give him something when it means nothing to you. High school, college student, many of you have jobs, like jobs that pay real money. I realize you don't have a lot of money, but the good news is you don't have to be wealthy to make an impact for God. You've just got to be all in. And I realize you're probably saving your money for something like video games or computer or a car. And that's fine. That's wise. It's responsible. At least the, maybe the car, I don't know. But, but here's the question. Are you giving any of that money to God? Or are you keeping it all for yourself? Maybe for some of you in this room, it's not a sacrifice to give money. There are other ways to give, though, like time, treasure, and talents. Those are things we all must give. Maybe the real sacrifice comes when you give God your time. Like maybe the sacrifice comes when you give God your Sundays instead of voluntarily working 80 hours a week. Do you give God your time or do you give him what's left over from what you really want to do? Like, 
is there an area you are serving in the church, serving in the kids' ministry, serving in the nursery, and welcoming people Sunday morning, and checking people in, and cleaning between services, on the music team, on the tech team, and hopefully at least serving in the ministry of attendance? Are you serving? Lest you think I'm simply casting stones up here, this text is incredibly challenging to me, causes me to examine my heart. Like, am I living totally dependent on God? When was the last time I gave something and it was truly a sacrifice for me to give it? What am I holding back just for me? We lift our voices and sing, I surrender all. Like, that's a serious song. We should think about what we're singing sometimes. But I wonder if for me or for you, it would be more accurate to sing, I surrender most. Or maybe I surrender some. God doesn't demand our most. God doesn't demand our some. He demands our all. Where have you not surrendered? Where are you saying, God, you can't have that? <laughs> That's mine. This lady gave her all to following God. Tim Keller writes this. He says, if people are materialistic and ungenerous, it means they have not understood how Jesus, though rich, became poor for them. It means they have not understood what it means that in Christ we have all the riches and treasures. They may subscribe, subscribe to this as doctrine, but the affections of their heart are clinging to material things, finding them more excellent and beautiful than Jesus himself. And once again, that's just it. Do you see Jesus is beautiful? The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. If money is your chief delight, if wealth is your goal, you're not going to give it away. But if you have a heart that's been made alive by the Spirit, if the God of the Bible is your treasure and is at the bottom of your affections, you'll hold loosely onto the things of this world and you'll live for the world to come. You'll delight to give as an overflow from a changed heart, not because you have to, but because you want to. In uh, closing, let's, uh, let's circle back once again to Jesus' claim of divinity. That, I think, is the foundational issue. If you don't believe that claim, then frankly, nothing else he says is worth the hill of beans. It's just not. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? And it's a question that every one of us must answer. How we answer that question is of great and eternal significance. It reminds me of an interview I read between Bono from the band U2, who I know very little about. Either way, I read this interview, and a journalist who was writing a book about him. They were talking about religion, and eventually they got around to Jesus, and the interviewer asked this question to Bono. This is what he says. Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? And this is what Bono says. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. 
But Christ doesn't actually allow you to do that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And the people says, no, no, please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take, but don't mention the M word because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes on and he says, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but I actually am the Messiah. And this is, at this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what are you left with? So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turn upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. Bono continues, if only we could be more like him, the world would be transformed. When I look at the cross of Christ, what I see up there is all my garbage and everyone else's. So I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. Who is this man? And was he who he said he was? Or was he just a religious nut? And there it is. And that's the question. And that is the question. Who is this man? How will you answer that question this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning that you have given Thank you for your word which you have given so that we can know you. I pray that in the quietness of the day, or even in this moment, we would examine our hearts to see if we're living with open hands. That you would reveal to us by your spirit the stubborn places where sin still lingers, and that we would repent and turn fully to you. I pray that this morning and this week we would live totally dependent on you, fully surrendered, generous, holding nothing back. I pray that we would all in this room believe that you are the perfect Son of God, the Savior that we need, and that we would by grace receive you as our treasure and trust you as our King. Bless us as we go from this place. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.